Hi everybody, welcome, welcome back. Um, what we're going to look at today is session five of our series on Revelation, focusing on um, chapters eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Believe it or not, um, it feels like a little while between drinks. I've had a busy week, but um, we've put together this se- this session over the last. Um, couple of days and I'm quite excited about it I think that there's a lot in it that we can um, really feed on um, one of the things talking to Hannah and reflecting myself about um, these sessions is I think it's really important that we recognize that um, God is speaking to us through his word and while Hannah and I Um, pray before we record these I think it's worth just um, beginning with a prayer that's part of part of the podcast itself so I'll begin just um, speaking to the Lord on all our behalves Uh, Lord Jesus we just want to honor you again thank you for your eternal promise to dwell with us and we just expect again today that you'll speak to us through your word and protect us from any sort of intellectual exercise where we where where we go about attempting to master the scripture we just want to acknowledge today that it's you who are addressing us so we invite you to speak by your spirit and we're determined to listen and obey and just feed on you we ask all these things in your name Amen. Okay, um, just sort of flagging this session and where we're going with maybe with the next one. I've also had another thought that maybe after this session, which would be we'd be halfway through the book at the end of chapter eleven, we might have a session with a difference. Um, you can skip it if you're not interested, but um, just in the light of what I was I was praying, really thinking through. What is, how is God speaking to us? What sort of things has he been saying as we've been working through the text? How does it relate to how we live today? We thought we'd just have a session that was a bit more of a reflection on here and now, um, just sharing a little bit about what Hannah and I, uh, <coughs> what Hannah and I have been maybe thinking about and reflecting on in the light of our you know, our own lives in the world around us. It might be a bit shorter too, which would be good perhaps. Um, In relation to today's session, um, we're trying something quite ambitious, which is four chapters. And um, in preparing it, I can see by the um, amount of notes that I have that it's going to be relatively long. So we might end up breaking it into two parts. But I think it's really important just to emphasise at the beginning of this section of chapters 8 to 11 that you need to really be understanding these four chapters as a unit together. They really um, go together. And so even if we do end up breaking it in two parts, I think to, to get a really good sense out of what John's doing in these chapters um, you need to be listening to them and thinking about them as sort of an integrated, an integrated whole. Um, 
our priority is very much in understanding the parts and how they fit together so that you can really read the book for yourself more more effectively. Um, there's lots, perhaps lots of detail within these four chapters that we just won't get to addressing in every detail. Um, but uh, I suppose it's about understanding that the priority is about understanding the building blocks and how the bits go together. So it's basically a sequence of um, seven judgments that are that are the result of um, these prayers of the saints coming up to heaven and then um, God instructs an angel to mix them with fire and then they're cast back on the earth as seven ju judgments um, each accompanied by a trumpet blast. And then then similar to the pattern that we saw previously with the, um, what was the first seven that we looked at? The seals. The seven seals. There's there's a an intermission between the sixth and the seventh where you have um, a shift in focus to what's God doing with his people on the earth? What's happening with the church? In what ways... Is the church preserved um, in the midst of these judgments? And so this intermission, which is really chapters 10 and 11, um, is, is very, very rich. There's lots to see, and it really focuses on the church's role in the proclamation of the gospel. So you have this, this twin focus through these chapters of the power of pr the prayers of the saints on the earth and also the incredible power that accompanies the proclamation of the gospel on the earth. And both of these things are really expressions of um, Jesus' conquering rule. Just before we begin, the other thing I'd like to do is just um, gather our thoughts a little bit about some important thematic things to keep in mind as we approach these chapters and perhaps remind you of a couple of things we have already talked about but I just want to emphasise again, um, it's been in my own reading, daily reading, um, it's been interesting how this idea has come up um, again for me just this week. So the first, the first really important idea I just want to re-emphasise is this idea that in talking about last things or the end of things, um, we need to keep in focus that Jesus is the eschaton or the end of things. He is the last. He he is the last person, the Alpha and the Omega. So that that idea that the unveiling of history and its final fulfilment are really an outworking of His person and His life and His work. That is such an important um, grounding idea. If if you're wanting to understand where John is coming from in terms of how he's put together um, this series of visions in the book of Revelation. And I was, I've been reminded about, um, I was re actually reading it during the week, a passage in Colossians chapter 1. It's a passage you'll be really familiar with, but it sort of sums up this point. Um, Paul makes a similar point. He says, in referring to Jesus, he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Um, perhaps Paul's more focusing on Jesus being the beginning as much as him being the end. But the point's the, the, point's the same in the sense any understanding of progress in history, you need to understand that all of these things are in a, an amazing way contained in the life of Jesus. They're by him. They're in him. They're for him. Um, and that's, an, that, that's, a, that's a really important um, idea. So when we're looking at John's visions, we're not looking at primarily predictions about a distant future. The other really important reminder is he's, he's reminding these suffering churches in Asia Minor um, of the significance of Jesus' conquering rule and how, how they can um, view it and understand it. Um, these visions are, are designed to encourage the church that Jesus is conquering and ruling, and you can think about that historically. And we've talked already about the idea of you can look at uh, the significance of Jesus' person and his rule um, from the perspective of the past. What was accomplished at the cross and resurrection? You can think about it from the perspective of the present, in terms of how is he ruling now through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the church. And there's also a future aspect too, um, that idea that there will be a final fulfilment in a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus' um, person and rule will be unveiled in all of its glory for everyone to see. In a sense, um, theologically, that, that past, present and future way of thinking that historical way of thinking, you can also think about in terms of Jesus being the the person who is the end of things. And I read an I've been reading another great book um, by South African theologian where he he divides um, our understanding into what Jesus has accomplished for us, and that's really about going back to the cross what he accomplishes in us and through us, which is really looking at um, how Jesus is uh, working and ruling over the churches and th- and through the churches speaking to the world and what he accomplishes with us, and that looks forward to the time of the new heaven and the new earth where, where God will dwell with men, where, where Jesus will come to the earth and... Um, rule and be our shepherd and how all those great promises of the Old Testament, Emmanuel and Zion and the kingdom and all of those magnificent pictures um, will be fulfilled um, and completed in a way that in a sense surpasses um, the expectations of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so... Um, two, they were two little reminders, one about Jesus is the end and the second about um, just understanding his purpose here is to encourage 
suffering churches to view view Jesus' person and work in different ways that are deeply encouraging. Um, let's just refresh too in one more way. I, I want to pick up the idea that um, John's presenting a series of visions through this book of Revelation that are really reminding readers that Jesus is ruling and conquering through history. And he gives us multiple angles on this. And we've already seen two, and we're about to embark on number three. So if you work through the book of Revelation, there's really seven. It's always seven. Um, there's seven um, perspectives on the story of history. So chapter one, chapter four, chapter eight, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17 and chapter 20 all begin or initiate a vision of history that expresses something about Jesus' Jesus conquering rule. Um, And we've already seen two of these. So chapter 1, if you remember back, was the story of Jesus' person and work. And this is presented in the form of a doxology or a hymn of praise even before John gets into his vision where where in this hymn, John sort of summarises the the meaning of Jesus' um, life by focusing on his first coming and um, his dying, the significance of his shed blood and the the, um, freedom that it's won for, for human beings. And then towards the end of the doxology, he focuses on Jesus, the future hope of Jesus' second coming and his coming to dwell with with us. And this is followed by a vision of Jesus in the midst of his churches attending attending the lampstand. So if you put all those bits together, you've sort of got um, John giving us the meaning of Jesus in terms of his past, then his future, and then the vision really focuses on Jesus' present uh, with his church and um, attending the lampstands, etc. So, in a sense, it's a historical presentation. Um, chapter four introduces us to the second historical presentation through a vision of the throne room of God in heaven. So you have this uh, this these series of images that present uh, God as as this covenant keeping God. Um, surrounded by symbols that um, reflect um, that he hasn't forgotten his covenant and that he that he rules um, and and is fulfilling his covenant covenant through his rule. So you have um, um, in the midst of this throne room the figure the figure of the Lion of Judah who's presented. Um, before God, who's worthy to open the scrolls and its seals. Um, so he's the one who can make sense of history on the earth. And the picture changes to a lamb who was slain at the centre of the throne. And this is really um, t- taking readers' attention back to um, Jesus' past work, um, that his work on the cross and and. Um, dying and rising again is the thing that qualifies him to unveil the end of things. Um, then we watch the rule of this victorious lamb expressed in a series of devastating judgments as he opens each seal and reveals something about 
the final meaning of history and those forces that are behind human history are progressively exposed and revealed. And then it culminates in that intermission at the end of the, the sequence of seals that um, remind us that um, uh, Jesus is bringing th all, all things together and there's, there's this picture of the worshippers around his throne preserved and provided for and that picture of him as a lamb who's now become a shepherd um, dwelling with his people. So, um, again, a, a second perspective that um, sets Jesus and his work right at the centre um, of the history of the earth. Chapter 8 brings to us a new heavenly perspective on history. And, and this, this is a really interesting one because Chapter 8 really focuses on um, the role the church is playing in bringing about um, uh, the progress of the of God's redemptive work in history. So you have this the um, the initiative of the prayers of the saints coming up to heaven, and then um, them being mixed with fire from the altar and cast on the earth as judgment. So it's implying that the prayers of the saints have this incredibly significant role to play in terms of. Um, uh, the outcomes and the judgments God's working on the earth. And then chapters 10 and 11 really focus on the power of the pro proclamation of the gospel and how that's um, playing out on the earth as well. And in a sense, both of these are works of, of Jesus through the church. Um, the prayers of the saints are, in a sense, the son's communion with the father that idea that we're crying out by the Spirit, um, the church is crying out and, it, and, and these prayers are coming up to the throne. Um, and that idea that prayer is such a powerful expression of kingdom rule, like, like the proclamation of the, the gospel as well. We might now just listen to Hannah read um, chapters 8 and 9. Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal and the golden censer. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. On the golden altar before the throne, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The Trumpets Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. 
The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, so the beginning of chapter 8 returns to this um, sequence of seven seals and we're up to the seventh and um, we have the figure of the lamb opening the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for half an hour, um, just underlining the awesome significance of this final seal. Um, I don't know if you've been noticing that heaven's just been full of noise and worship and sounds and colour and um, now we have this moment of um, like a massive dramatic pause and John sees in his vision seven angels standing before God with seven trumpets. So again, um, this sequence of seals is now being overtaken by a new picture of seven trumpeters angelic trumpeters with their trumpets. Trumpets um, are about announcing something. Um, they're also connected often in the Old Testament to battle, and it recalls to me the, you know, the, the, the seven trumpet peals that, are, that accompany the fall of Jericho, etc. And then you have three verses that start to build a new picture of something else going on that John notices. So let's just take a minute to um, make sense of the, the parts of the picture here. What's, what's going on? What are we seeing from chapters, I mean, sorry, verse 3 to verse 5, Hannah? What's the picture you're seeing of uh, what's he seeing in terms of this going on in heaven? An angel with a golden censer. Standing at an altar. Okay, so you've got an angel with a golden censer. So a censer's um, a a golden pan that was used for um, carrying incense. So charcoal would be placed um, uh, in the pan, and and incense would be sprinkled over the charcoal, and and the, uh, it would create this this incense aroma that would go up, and that was part of um, the temple worship. So you have um, an angel here with a censer standing at the altar. What are the other parts of the picture? Um, he was given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. Yeah, so, so in some translations it, it actually um, emphasises that the incense is the prayers of the saints. In the NIV that we're reading from, it's like the incense accompanies the prayers of the saints that combines with the prayers of the saints, going up as smoke before the throne of God. So it's a pleasing aroma before God. Then what happens? The angel took the censer and filled it with fire and hurled it to the earth. Okay, so okay, so you have this thing. It, it's like a, a something two ways happening here. You've got um, the incense going up as smoke, and the incense we're seeing is um, a, the pleasing aroma of the prayers of the saints going up as smoke before God. But then 
Um, the angel takes fire from the altar, and it's it's sort of like a picture of the angel setting fire to the, the these prayers of the saints and casting them back on the earth um, as a judgment that are judgments that are hurled onto the earth. And in a sense, these uh, this this picture is what. Um, introduces and gives context to what's going to happen with the seven trumpet blasts. These these will be the judgments that are uh, thrown on the earth as a result of um, the angels' action combining the, the prayers of the saints with the fire of the altar, the fire of God's judgment, and that they'll be cast down as judgments on the earth. Um. Again, this picture is taken from um, an Old Testament judgment in Ezekiel where in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 10, you have um, an angel carrying out a very similar similar action in relation to Jerusalem that's clearly a parallel to what this angel is doing with respect to the whole earth. And we'll just quickly read it before we move on. Verse 2. Yep. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Okay, so you have this cherubim who's instructed to take coals from the altar and um, throw them down as as fiery judgments over Jerusalem. Um. Okay, what are we seeing here? I think I think the big the, the, the big thing that we're seeing is it's not evil that's disturbing the history of the world. The the initiative belongs to God, and it's God's actions that are bringing about fiery judgment on the earth. The thing that's amazing about this little section is the active role of the the prayers of the saints have in um, contributing to. Uh, God's fiery judgment of the earth, and it's it's uh, shows the significance of prayer as a as an incredibly powerful force in the progress of history and how God's working things out in on the earth. Um, what you have then is a series of trumpet blasts. So there's this, there's four initially um, from verse six through to um, verse 12. And I don't have a lot to say about these symbolic pictures in detail, but there there is a couple of observations that I think are helpful in understanding um, the big picture of what what John's trying to communicate through um, this vision of these four trumpet blasts uh, here. One of the things that really jumps out at me when when I'm reading through um, what result these trumpet blasts have on the earth is how much creation is caught up in in uh, these judgments. So if you if you go through each of the trumpet blasts, in the first one, a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, all the green grass. In the second one, you have um, 
the sea turned to blood and all the living creatures, in a third of the living creatures in the sea die, ships are destroyed. The third one, you have um, a great star from the sky um, falling on a third of the rivers um, and the water turns bitter. And then the fourth one, the sun struck a third of the moon, a third of the stars, um, so that a third of them turned dark and the day was without light, also a third of the night. Um, what, what's, what, are we seeing, what are we seeing here in terms of what, what could we say about the impact of these judgments on creation? Well, all all aspects of creation are being disturbed. Yeah, yeah. That these these judgments are impacting on all of all, all created thing, all of created life, um, people, and all of creation. Probably two other things that that I think are come out of the of these sequence of judgments is that they're they're very strongly um reminiscent of the plagues of that um god brought to egypt but on a global scale um the way nature's affected and um the pictures of things um fire on the earth and um rivers to, to uh the sea turning to blood etc um, there's parallels with what happened to Egypt um, and, and it's a picture of God's judgment affecting the whole of, a, whole of society or um, all of life. The other thing that I think that's really interesting about the sequence is that it's like a winding back of creation that, you know, you have the grass and trees affected and then mountains thrown into the sea and it's 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 like creations the old creations unraveling um and and in terms of the sequence of creation it ends even in the sun moon and stars being affected and and it, it ends in darkness so it's like creation gets wound back to its very beginning and i think part of part of what's going on here is a picture of um judgment is this is the winding up of the first, um, the first earth and the first heaven, in preparation for chapter twenty-one and twenty-two, where we'll see a new heaven and a new earth. But it's like a picture of judgment that's just overwhelming and um, impacting on all parts of the old creation. Um, I did want to say a couple of things about the third judgment in in particular that's quite a, quite interesting the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water what we'll see in these these series of judgments is um, there's a couple of places actually where stars fall from the sky what did we see that stars represented way back in chapter one do you remember the angel? Yeah, so it's quite, again, it's not 100% clear, but it's quite likely what's being described here is it perhaps alluding to a mighty angel 
um, and it says the name of the star is wormwood. Um, wormwood is was actually is actually a bitter herb. Uh, the name of a bitter herb. Um, and this might relate to um, some actions that take place in in one of the um, later trumpet blasts that we'll see. But this idea of um, bitterness being part of um, a judgment on the earth, I think, is interesting as well. So it says the outcome of this star falling to earth and turning a third of the rivers, um, affecting a third of the rivers and springs of water and causing the water to turn bitter and many people died from the water that had become bitter. So this emphasis on bitterness is, is interesting also in the light of the fact that um, what's going to happen uh, in one or two chapters' time is John's going to eat a scroll that turns bitter in his stomach. So there's something happening with bitterness through these chapters and and it's connected in the latter chapters with how people respond to the gospel and the, the, the prophetic message, the testimony of Jesus presented in the gospel. And I think probably something similar um, is being alluded to here that this bitterness is a bitterness that um, speaks to uh, how people are responding to this terrible judgment rather than moving to repent and um, come back to God, etc. They're handed over to this bitterness that you might call hard-heartedness or being handed over to their own will. And you see, you see this. Um, in individuals, certainly through the scriptures, Cain, Pharaoh, Judas, those who um, respond to God's word of word of judgment by hardening their hearts, that's that's um, a terrible thing, and bitterness is often the outcome. We get to chapter nine then, and chapter nine. It, there's like an escalation of the significance and seriousness of the the, the trumpet blasts. So before before the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, you have this um, observation in verse thirteen. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in mid air call out in a loud voice. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so um, foreshadowing that, you know, the last three tr trumpet blasts are going to be devastating. The fifth trumpet um, is sounded, beginning of chapter 9, and we see another star here, and I saw a star fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Um, and when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky was darkened by the smoke, and out of the smoke came locusts. And, and then you have this picture of this army of locusts that goes forward. This is, a, um, in lots of ways, a really frightening picture. Um, what could we what could we say about it? Well, I think 
I think what's going on here, again, stars are strongly connected with angelic beings throughout this book. And I, I suspect that what's going on here is, is you've got a, got a, um, a, an angel cast down to the earth. Um, and it's sort of, um, it's one of the significant things, I think, about, about the two um, trumpet blasts in Chapter 9, that the focus seems to be shifting to the intense spiritual opposition to God in the world that's behind human beings. Um, but this spiritual opposition um, also seeks to destroy um, human beings. But we see that that these spiritual forces, that their power is um, limited by God and they can't, um, they can't just destroy whatever they want, but God um, limits their destructive power. And I think this this fifth angel, um, this powerful angel that gets cast to the earth, we can we can say some things about it. Perhaps um, this angel is given um, or opens the abyss. So what what is the abyss in the Old Testament? Well, again, it's a it's an image you see throughout the Old Testament, and and it's. An old te- reflects an Old Testament idea that there's a place of confinement or punishment for wicked spirits or wicked angels, um, etc., where they're where they're um, locked up. So you have um, this figure who um, is able to open open the abyss, and perhaps it's a picture of Satan. Um, one of the interesting passages that, that from the Old Testament that connects with this, this first section comes from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. I'll just get Hannah to read it um, to us. What verses? 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. The thing that I find really interesting is the connection between this angelic figure that's cast to, to, to the earth in Isaiah's prophecy and the, the connection to um, the, this angel being, what, what does it say, cast um, to the, put something to the grave. The, what's the very last bit? Right down to the grave, to the depths, depths of, of the, the pit. pit. Now, literally that pit is the abyss. That's what's being talked about here. And it's one of the places in the Old Testament that connects the casting down of a a, a being um, to this idea of the abyss. And I wonder if that's what John's picking up on here. The, the prophecy in Isaiah is extremely interesting for a whole lot of reasons. It's fundamentally a prophecy against the king of Babylon. But when you read the prophecy, you clearly see behind this 
the rule of the king of Babylon is this angelic power. Um, and what, what's really been described is Satan's um, rebellion against God and the outcome for Satan being cast to the earth. Um, that's how most people, um, Jew, Jews as well, have interpreted this um, prophecy from Isaiah, that it speaks about the king of Babylon in one sense, but alludes to an angelic figure at the back of the king of Babylon that's Satan. Um, when we, when we, the, the picture develops and this, this army of locusts goes out um, to do battle um, and kill people on the earth, um, and, and again, we won't read it, but this is a picture taken from Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2 which is a judgment against Israel. But this locust imagery and locusts becoming like horses with teeth, like lions, etc., um, is drawn from the Old Testament. Um, locusts as well recall um, plagues in Egypt. Um, one of the plagues in Egypt was a locust plague. I think one of the significant things here is that um, th this, this dark spiritual force um, is not working with human beings. It's working against them to kill them and, and wipe them out and oppress them and torment them. And it says, during those days, men will seek death but will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. And this is because of the agony that they'll endure at the hands of this locust, this locust army. One of the most important things to see in this passage, though, is that the um, the church is protected? I'm just trying to find that bit. Verse four. Yeah, verse four. Do you want to read verse four? Um, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Okay, so we've seen already the seal of God is this remnant people, um, God's chosen people. Um, the church, and they're protected from the devastation of this um, this force that goes out to destroy and oppress. Um, so in the midst, they're preserved. Then you have the sixth trumpet. So um, I'm now I'm now over in verse thirteen. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said, release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. So you have the release of these four angels that are authorised to go out and kill one third of mankind. And again, an enormous army um, uh, attend these uh, four angelic beings. Um, and John describes them as a, a number. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. So just a phenomenal army in terms of its size. And, again, you get these bizarre pictures of this army of horses that look like dragons with lion's heads and tails like snakes. And plagues come out of their mouths, um, fire and smoke and sulphur, and it does enormous damage, killing um, a third of mankind. What's interesting, I think, um, about the end of this picture 
is verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. So it's a picture of um, the earth in rebellion against God being being destroyed by these um, spiritual forces that are unleashed, but it's not causing them to repent at all. Um, they stay uh, hard-hearted towards um, towards God, and they're given over to the, their worship of demons and idols. It's just a picture of overwhelming wickedness. Um, then you have in the midst of these terrible judgments, well, the question that we'd be, we'd be asking is, well, what, what's happening to God's people while these terrible judgments are being unleashed uh, on the earth? And that's where um, we'll pick up chapter 10 and chapter 11. Revelation chapter 10, the angel and the little scroll. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from, from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign for ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Okay, before we move into um, chapter 10 and 11, which from my perspective are two of the most exciting chapters in the whole book, um, let's just gather our thoughts about where we've come in chapter 8 and 9, particularly from the perspective of the audience for these for this book, um, are suffering churches in Asia Minor. So what would they have been making of um, chapter chapters 8 and 9 and these devastating judgments that are poured, being poured out on the earth? Um, what could you say, Han? In what, ways, in what ways would they have been encouraged by what they were reading? Well, I think the main encouragement is in the beginning of Chapter 8 um, where it's clear that their prayers are being heard by God and um, responded to powerfully. 
Yeah. And there's also that sense in Chapter 9 that they're being preserved or protected in the midst of these devastating judgments, mm-hmm. that idea that um, God doesn't allow um, these dark spiritual forces to touch anyone who has the seal, only those who do not have the seal. So th- there's that sense of preservation. Mm-hmm. How, how perhaps would the, would it have been a bit disheartening or discouraging to read Chapter 8 and 9? Well, Chapter 9 especially, you see, um, like, wickedness and violence and opposition to God and um, especially in verse 20, you see that unwillingness to repent, turn from their ways. And so I think um, there's a disheartening aspect to to hearing that and feeling almost hopeless that they're they're doomed to destruction at their own hand because they're unwilling to repent. Yeah, that idea of history's progressing, but it seems to be like a like a sort of out of control train wreck or something mm-hmm. where, where you where you've just got um, e- evil just manifesting all over the place and people just hardening their hearts and refusing to repent. The encouraging thing about chapters 10 and 11 is chapters 10 and 11 really are the reminder, particularly for these churches in the first century but also for us, it's not evil out of control here that's... um, deciding the future of the world. Rather, it's God moving history forward with his people. And so very much 10 and 11 are the main action in history. Mm-hmm. Um, 8 and 9 are sort of the background, but the foreground is chapter 10 and 11, very much like the um, the parallel intermission that we saw back a couple of chapters ago. So let's have a look at Chapter 10. And, again, we'll start with the picture and see if we can just make sense of what John's seeing here first. So he talks about seeing another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. We're starting to see elements that we've seen before. Mm -hmm. What do rainbows uh, symbolise or represent? God's covenant of love. Yeah, and how important is that? So in the midst in the midst of a world that looks like it's heading to destruction at the end of chapter 9, here's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten his covenant with human beings and with his people. Um, and so uh, it says this, this angel's face was like the sun, his legs like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And again from Daniel, we won't go into it too much, but that idea of a foot on the land and a foot on the sea, that sea is over restless humanity, like the sea that we we see um, in Daniel's prophecies. Over the land, the land's often, uh, uh, visions of the land in Daniel are often connected to those the unveiling of stages in history. So you've got this angel standing over restless humanity through the progress of their history. Um, That's the picture. 
And then he shouts like the roar of a lion. Um, and in the midst of these seven thunders speak. Now, these seven thunders are a bit mysterious. I don't know um, what's going on here, to be honest. But all that, all that we hear is that they speak and John's about to write down what he heard them say. And then he heard a voice seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So that's like a hidden, something hidden that's not for, um, not to be unveiled at this time. And it, it recalls an instruction actually in Daniel's final prophecy of the end of times, right at the end of his book, where there's a similar instruction about keeping keeping some things hidden. Um, then the angel um, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in them and the sea and all that is in it. And he said this, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So it seems to me like this angel is likely to be the angel of the Lord who speaks for God. This sounds like God's voice in the voice of an angel here, that there will be no more delay and that the mystery of God will be accomplished. Literally, um, the, the phrase is, um, it's, it's translated in the NIV, there will be no more delay, but literally it is, Time will be no longer. So um, it's, it's, again, pointing out to everyone listening that we're at the end of things here, the very end of things, the end of history. Um, this is quite interesting to think about in relation to um, John's instruction at the end of this little vision, at the end of the chapter in a few verses' time, that he must prophesy um, um, he must speak um, speak out uh, what he's what he's seeing what he's seeing here. I'll talk more about that uh, when we get when we get there. Um, then there's this bizarre thing that happens. Um, John's instructed to take the scroll from the hand of the angel and to eat it, and he's told that it'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And again, um, this is a picture that's taken directly from um, an experience Ezekiel had at the beginning of his prophetic ministry where he was similarly given a scroll to eat. Um, I'll get Hannah just to read it to you. It's from Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 8 to chapter 3, verse 3. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. 
So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Okay. So it's a very similar picture, isn't it? Um, what you need to appreciate here, this is the very beginning of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. So it's where he's called by God to, to, to be a prophet to Israel. And in a sense, serving the same, the picture is serving the same function in Revelation, where um, the sequence, the, the sequence that follows um, John um, eating the scroll, is an instruction that's about it being sent out to prophesy to peoples and nations and languages and kings. Um, that he has a responsibility to. Um, pass on this this word of God to to others. Um, why do you think this is something to think about, Hannah? Why do you think um, this word of God would taste like honey to eat in your mouth, but once digested um, in your stomach, it, it would taste sour or bitter? What might that be about? Do you reckon? Um. Maybe it's not made to be digested. That's an interesting thought. Well, what about this idea, Han? Go back to go back to earlier in in um, uh, the book of Revelation, where where we see God's word at work, and it always is doing two functions: saving and judging. Yeah. Mm. So there's a sense in which. Um, this scroll is the word of God for people. It's the thing that he has to prophesy out. Um, and it and it'll have two aspects to it. One a sweet aspect and one a sour aspect. How how could you connect how could you connect John's experience here to this idea of saving and judging, perhaps? Sorry, I'm trying to make you guess what's in my head. I'll have a go. Well, it's sweet to taste because because he's a prophet um, who's open to God's word. So again, you, you know, there's all sorts of pictures through through the scriptures of God's word being good good food and good to eat and tasting sweet as honey. Um, it's the idea that it sustains you and brings you life and um, brings blessing. But for those who reject it, it's something that's bitter and sour. Now, John's not doing both himself. Maybe it's maybe it's the idea that um, uh, John's recognizing uh, e eating this scroll is sweet to taste in the sense that. Um, He's, res he's responding to God's word in a way that's open and leaning forward, um, listening. Um, but once he, once he digests it um, and perhaps begins to warn others to repent and that judgment is coming, maybe, maybe the sourness comes from the result of the fact of how this word is responded to once he begins to prophesy that 
that um, it might produce in him, you know, watching others respond in a way where they're turning their backs or hardening their heart or um, refusing to listen, in a sense, creates a bitterness in his stomach, a a grief, an anger that that, um, people aren't responding to this word um, and and the outcome is the sour um, bitterness of of, a, of hard-heartedness and and that judgment etc. Mm. Um, interestingly, it move, it moves on. Uh, then then I, then he's told um, to go out and prophesy to the world about this. So. I'm just. It, it makes me think back to the the original um, roar of the angel, where the the angel said, "There will be no more delay. The mystery of God will be accomplished." And I wonder whether um, it's through the voice of the prophet here that that word is actually fulfilled. It's fulfilled by. Um, the declaration of the the prophetic word, the, the prophetic word, the call to repentance, the warning that God is going to judge, that um, it is reflected in um, John eating this eating this scroll, and ultimately, um, what we'll see what we'll see in this book is the spirit. John John will say it: the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That ultimately, what's going on here? What is this prophecy he has? Um, it's not a prophecy about um, necessarily, um, you know, locusts and armies and seals, etc. It's it's the story of Jesus essentially. It's the gospel that goes forward. That that's the prophecy that is this word to the world, a word to the world, warning them to repent, calling them to. Um, respond to God's gracious gift in Jesus. Um, and there's a sense in which uh, the declaration of this word means there will be no more delay. It actually becomes an eternal word. That That is, when, when you hear that word, it's like time stops. There is no more time. This is the eternal moment where the hearers either respond respond and receive or respond by rejecting and um, choosing choosing bitterness and hard-heartedness, etc. So it's like um, the purpose of God will be accomplished, accomplished. There will be no more delay. Once that gospel message is out and running in the world, that's an encounter, that's an eternal encounter um, and there's no time left, in a sense, once you've heard that word. And how you respond to that word, um, you know, set, sets um, eternity. So, in a sense, the, the probably the last thing to say about chapter ten is um, this is an instruction to John and a prophetic call to John. But in a sense, it's the prophetic call that, that belongs to the whole church. It's the whole church in every generation who receives this call to eat this word and digest it like honey in your mouth, 
and but then proclaim and declare it. And w- what you will find is it produces a sourness in your stomach because not everyone will respond in the way that you would that you would hope. That it will produce a harvest of bitterness as well a, 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 as well as a harvest of of grace, and that's. Um, that's God's prerogative and something outside the control of the church. But um, what we're seeing in chapter 10 is the, the initiative is God's and the power is with um, um, those given this prophetic task to, to proclaim the gospel in the world. Okay, chapter 11 begins um, with a new picture so you have um, John being given a measuring rod. Um, what's the picture? What's the picture, Hannah, in the, these first couple of verses of chapter 11? What are the parts? He's told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar there, but exclude the outer courts. Yeah. And he's yeah. also told to count the number of worshippers there. Yeah. So this, again, this is an Old Testament idea. It's also an idea we see at the end of Revelation. Do you remember where right at the end in the new heaven and the new earth, um, he's given a measuring rod and told to go and measure the the, the Zion, the city of God. Mm -hmm. Um, Measuring and counting speaks of preservation. This is about, this is um, symbolic pictures that speak of God preserving his people preserving the church. So you have a picture of the temple, the place where God dwells, um, well, symbolic of the place where God dwells, the, a picture of the altar that's often associated through Revelation with the suffering church, um, the martyrs cry from beneath the altar, the prayers of the saints come up before the altar. Um, fire from the altar is combined with the prayers and cast on the earth. So um, I, I see here um, John being um, asked to measure measure the temple of God and the altar. It, it's reminding it's reminding uh, everyone watching that God and His people go together, and that He's counting them, preserving them, making sure that um, making sure that the, um, the full numbers there, and that no one is lost, etc. I think that's part of what's going on with the counting here. What's the what's the what's verse um, two add to the picture? Exclude the outer court. Yeah, it's been given to the Gentiles. And what does it say will happen? Um, they will trample on the holy city for forty-two months. So this is the other side of things. There's a preservation aspect going on, but there's also there's also a recognition. Um, the vision is, is recognizing that there's going to be a period of suffering as well. Um, this it, it'll be for a period of time. Um, it won't destroy uh, the temple or the altar, um, but. It will have an impact on um, the outer court of the Gentiles. So, so it will affect. I think the idea is that this this suffering will affect um, 
will affect the church to some extent. Is 42 months significant? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a whole lot of numbers that crop up in this little section, and we see some of these ideas repeated as the chapters develop, but you have 42 months, um, the holy city will be trampled, and then in verse 3, 1260 days will the two witnesses prophesy. Um, A bit later in chapter 12, it talks about um, uh, a period of time, times and half a time, uh, which is a Hebrew way. It's a Hebrew saying of a year, years and half a year. In other words, three and a half years. If you do the sums, what's really interesting is that all of these um, numbers add up to around approximately um, three and a half years. And I think that is significant and it's probably even though it's a bit technical you know numbers were very important to the ancient jews particularly in their writings in a way that we probably just brush over them Mm. but they were clearly important to john Um, and we're trying to understand what's john trying to communicate through these visions to his original audience and the numbers mean something so I think it'd be worthwhile just taking a couple of minutes to try and understand where do these numbers come from and what's going on with these references to 42 months or 1260 days or time, times and half a time. Um, They all come out of uh, a reading of Daniel's prophecies. Mm -hmm. So what I might do is just get you to... to, um, read the key passage from Daniel chapter 9 that all of these numbers relate to. Um, it's chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end, end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, so uh, step we'll, we'll do it bit by bit. But what's going on in verse 24 is in Daniel's prophecy is that he he's introducing a, a period of time which will see the end of the age, the kingdom of God come. All of those things described there are about the day of the that they they are about the day of the Lord turning up. Mm-hmm. and being present. And he describes a period called 77s. So 70 lots of seven years, which equals 490 years. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's prophesying within the space of, or, or within this time frame of 490 years, uh, we will see the day of the Lord, um, the kingdom of God present Um on the earth. Okay, let's read the next little bit. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. Okay, stop there. So he's now gonna break this period of seventy lots of seven into three parts. And we've just heard about the first two. Mm-hmm. He's saying the period between um, the decree that allowed the 
Jews to come back to Jerusalem mm. and rebuild their temple. So that was Darius's decree, the Persian king. Mm-hmm. The period from that time to when the anointed one, that's the Messiah, when the Messiah turns up, he says it's going to be defined by a period of seven times seven and 62 times seven. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, the first period perhaps refers to the period of seven times seven. That's about, well, it's exactly 49, 50, 49 years speaks to the time that it will take to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then there'll be a further 62 times seven, which will be the period between the restoration of Jerusalem to when the Messiah turns up. And if you add that up, it's around 483 years. And amazingly, Daniel is about bang on, accurate. Um, It was about 483 years from the return from exile to the coming of Jesus. Mm. What's really interesting, though, is 62 plus 7 adds to 69. So there's one little set of 7 that's missing. Mm -hmm. Okay, keep reading. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay. Now, I readily admit all the bits of this I'm not 100% sure about, but there's some bits that seem relatively clear. So one of the things that I think is remarkable about this prophecy is that the observation that the anointed one will be cut off. Um, Did you read that bit? Yeah. And and it will be like the end and it will come like a flood. Yeah, yeah, just say that bit again. The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Yeah, keep going. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and the desolations have been decreed. Okay, so there's there's sort of part part of the coming of the anointed one um, is bringing about the end of things and it says he'll be cut off, which, again, um, as Christians, we we connect strongly to um, the cross and Jesus bringing about the end of things in the cross. What's interesting, though, is that there will be a period after the anointed one is cut off, and this is the final seven. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So I think what's going on in Revelation is John knows this prophecy back the front. He understands this pattern of sevens completely. And what he's recognising is, in terms of Daniel's prophecy, Jesus has turned up and fulfilled the first 69 of the 77s. And then there's this symbolic period that will follow the end of things, which, which John is connecting to the coming of the anointed one, his death and resurrection. 
that will see him confirm a covenant, that is, live under the new covenant with his people. And this is the final seven. And for John, this this final seven is the period of the last days that that begins with um, Jesus' ascension and rule and the coming of the Holy Spirit and won't end till he comes again. And so this entire, we've been now living it for 2,000 years. For John, he'd been living it for about six, 70 or 80 years. Um, this period um, is symbolised by this final seven where God will make a covenant with his people. Does that make sense? Yep. So he associates the present, the present period that he lives in, that the churches in Asia Minor live in, and we could also say that we live in with this symbolic period of the last seven years. So he he starts to arrange all of his numerical references to fit in with this symbolic timeline of seven years. Now, it's not a literal seven years. Seven years symbolises the perfect completeness of God's kingdom rule during the last days that he's part of. Now, it causes us to ask another question. Why is the holy tr- tr- city trampled for 42 months? That is three and a half years. Why do two witnesses prophesy for 1260 days in sackcloth? That is three and a half years. What is What does he keep taking us to? What does John keep taking us to in terms of the timeline? The middle of the last days. Yes, the middle of the last days. And I think that that's the, that is the point. He only ever, in terms of timing, mm. he only ever gives us the midpoint. Mm. What, and he does it in different ways all through. Time, times and half a time means exactly the same thing. Mm. This is always his answer to timing. So whenever whenever a question of timing crops up, his answer is, the midpoint. What's he saying to us? I think what he's saying to what he's saying to Christians in Asia Minor, um, don't try and work out a sequence. Stop counting. Mm. This is what the angel said to Daniel way back when at the in chapter 12. What, what, what he's saying is all you can know and be reassured about is if these things are happening around you, you're right in the middle of the last days. This is what the last days will be like. There, there will be trampling of the holy city. There will be witnesses prof- prophesying in sackcloth. There will be a beast out in the world. Um, where in the sequence of years, he, he's not making that point. That's not what the numbers are about. What he's saying is if you if you are recognising these things around you, know that you are right in the middle of the last days. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Um, I found that really quite interesting to work through and I hope it wasn't too technical. Um, but to me it really unlocks how John is we, – we, we, people can say whatever they want about the timing of the end of things mm-hmm. and people have about – especially in the last 100 years, it's become an obsession to work out timings and end things and rah, rah, rah. What's John getting at? John's getting at this point that you are in the middle of the last days when you're seeing these things around you happening. And that's a deep encouragement to people. 
Can can I just clarify? Yeah. By the middle, you don't mean the exact middle. You no. just mean it's after the cross and before yeah. Jesus comes again. Yeah, not the exact middle. That's right. It, it's it's sort of it's you're it's just you're in the middle in the sense of um, you're part of it, and these things are happening all around you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's continue with the picture then a bit. So we have the appearance of these two, the, these figures, um, the witnesses, and the, again, this is a really helpful thing to see and understand. So. Um, I will get verse three. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days. Days clothed clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So he introduces this. Introduces us to these two witnesses. Um, that, are, that appear in the middle of this period. They're right in the middle of things. That's the point. Mm. Um, what's the significance of two witnesses? Well, again, if you if you had grown up steeped in the Old Testament like John had, two witnesses, um, you, you, you wouldn't even need to explain the significance of that. Mm. Um, whenever you make an oath under Jewish law or, or give a testimony, it requires the support of two witnesses. The whole foundation of the law and the promises and God's covenant mm-hmm. rests on um, this idea of um, two witnesses. Yeah, to, to establish something as true, you need two. Yeah, per- perfectly, perfectly said. That's the exact point. To establish something as true, you need these two witnesses. Um, I don't know if you recall, but in the New Testament there's that um, in the Gospels, there's that amazing story of John, go, John and Peter and James going up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Mm. And you remember Jesus appears um, in all his glory and a cloud descends and Father speaks and you see these other two figures, yeah. Moses. Elijah. Yeah, that's right, Elijah and Moses. And these figures are acting as two witnesses to the old covenant. They represent the old covenant. And fathers pointing away from the old covenant saying, listen to my son. It's the the idea that we're establishing a new covenant in this one. Um, Now, what I would say, and again, this is my interpretation, other people interpret it differently, but I, I do not think that these two witnesses being pointed out in Revelation 11, are historical individuals. That's not the point. The the point is that there will be witnesses to this new covenant on the earth in the last days. Um, And and I think that that the symbolism here speaks of, uh, well, I think we can say some clear things about who these witnesses are. So it says two olive trees and two lampstands. We'll have a look in a minute. This picture comes straight out of Zechariah 4, um, a really um, amazing little um, prophetic passage from the book of Zechariah affirming Zerubbabel as God's anointed and the one who's commissioned to rebuild the temple. But before we get there, let's just talk about the olive trees and the lampstands. So we've seen lampstands before in Revelation, haven't we? Do you remember? The churches. Yeah, yeah. Jesus among the lampstands 
at the beginning of the um, at the beginning of the book. Mm. Um, so I, again, there's no reason that that the that the um, the symbols changed. These lamp th- these lampstands represent the church. Um, and remember, lampstands aren't candles. They need what do they need to oil? They need oil. So what you have then is two olive trees. So what might the olive trees provide? A source of oil. Right, a living source of oil. Now, if, if, you, if you were to think in terms of the context of witnesses to um, the new covenant made in Jesus and you have the church and a living source of oil, what might that living source of oil be? The Holy Spirit? Yeah, I think it's a picture of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit and the church, and it says this in, you know, this, we could go to other places in the New Testament where it talks about the role of the church as a witness mm-hmm. and the Spirit bears witness um, mm-hmm. with your spirit. It's the idea that the church and the Holy Spirit move together in these last days bearing witness to the gospel. That's what that is the testimony of Jesus, the story of Jesus mm. and what he's done, saving and judging. Um, I think that's the picture that you have here. The new covenant witnesses aren't Elijah and Moses. They're the church and the, um, working with the Holy Spirit. Now, what else is really interesting here is that these witnesses stand before the Lord of the earth, um, clothed in sackcloth. What do we associate sackcloth with in the Old Testament? I think it's verse morning. 3. Yeah, morning. A sign of repentance? Yeah, probably both of those things. It's a sign. It, it, it's, it's a way of dressing to show people that, that you're in mourning or repenting. Mm. Now, why is it significant that the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth? What are they doing? Prophesying in sackcloth. What's the point? Why have them clothed like that? They're responding to God in humility? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I think part of the point is this is a humble church. Mm. It's a humble church that bears witness, that is a witness by its right response to the little scroll, to the word of the gospel. And the right response is, and the church church is in a sense um, prophesying by obediently responding to the word themselves. That is, they're recognising we're wrong. God is right. We need to repent. We need to turn away from our old ways, etc., um, we need to stand in the gap for the world around and cry out, God, show, um, thank you for your mercy. You know, that, that idea they're leading the world and the earth in repenting. Um, this is such an important idea because the church isn't a body that is, that is a witness that's standing there to the world saying, uh, you know, we're pure and you're disgusting and get get yourself sorted out sort of, like this elitist thing where you're standing on high as though you're superior, mm-hmm. the whole the whole point, it, it's a picture of the reverse. The church stands at the very bottom and says, 
we're going to we're we're going to bear witness by our example of repentance. That's the Mm -hmm. right response to the Mm -hmm. truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done. To say you're you are the king and you're completely right, and we yield and we submit. And it's in our yielding and submitting that we bear witness. Yeah. That is our witness. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing little, it's a, it's a little point, but it's such an important point in understanding the role of the church. And you can imagine the encouragement this would have been to, to these little humble church gatherings in Asia Minor, understanding their significance in the playing out of the, the last days. It's a massive encouragement. Okay, let's have a quick look at Zechariah 4. I don't think we'll take time to read the whole lot. I'll just tell you what happens. But if you're listening to this, I'd encourage you to go and have a read of the whole chapter. It's a really important little prophecy that directly um, speaks to what we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 11. So in this prophecy, what happens is Zechariah the prophet um, is prophesying, encouraging Israel that Zerubbabel, this leader of the Jews that have returned to the city, is the anointed one. He's a version of a Messiah. He's a foreshadowing of a Messiah, anointed by God to rebuild the temple and just just reaffirming his role and significance. Now, again, in Zechariah, you have a picture of two witnesses. Um, It's slightly different. You have a golden lampstand with seven um, lamps, like what you should picture is like an ancient Israelite menorah, you know, those um, seven-armed lampstands, the (laughs) Jewish lampstands? Picture something like that. And what's really interesting, this golden lampstand doesn't shine, it sees, and it represents actually the Lord. Um, And on either side of this lampstand are two olive trees, and these olive trees are the two witnesses, and and one is clearly Zerubbabel. And if you read back um, one chapter to Zechariah three, you see the other one is the high priest Joshua. So it's like Zerubbabel, who's the political leader um, in place of a of a king, in a sense, in this period of um, the history of the Jews. And you have the high priest Joshua, um, and it's these two figures that are the olive trees in this picture. But if you read through the chapter, and clearly John's got this in mind in terms of his encouragement of um, Christians in Asia Minor, there's so many really, really encouraging prophetic words in this chapter because you need to appreciate Zerubbabel's gone back to Jerusalem and a small remnant's gone back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem looks pathetic compared to what it used to look like. You know, things are in, in ruin. It looks like it looks like Jerusalem will never recover its former glory. And maybe it won't in terms of phys- physical recovery. Um, and, and people are beginning to question and lose hope and wonder if God's really in this, etc. And the prophetic words that come through the prophet Zechariah include things like, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, the recovery will be um, a, a work of God, a work of God's, a work of God's spirit, and it might look impressive or powerful, but don't doubt that God is at work and that His Spirit is behind um, 
the rebuilding of the temple. Um, There's another point made halfway through the chapter that that emphasises that God finishes things that he's begun, that I can't remember off the top of my head. I should have written it down. Um, The works that he's begun, he, he doesn't leave unfinished. It's something like that. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it? No. Yeah, well, that that speaks to it too. I thought there was something even more explicit than that. Anyway, maybe that's it. Um, it's It's the idea, yeah, maybe that is it. It's the idea that God will complete the thing that he's begun through his servant Zerubbabel. And, again, think about how encouraging that sense would be um, to uh, the first century Christians in, is, um, suffering for the gospel in their little towns and villages in Asia Minor. Yeah. Um, the, the, the great line towards the end of the chapter is, um, do not despise the day of small beginnings where um, uh, the Lord is emphasising to, to the Jews that have gone back to Jerusalem, it might look unimpressive, but this little beginning, do not despise it because it, it, it actually means means something incredibly important to God. It may look little and insignificant, but but don't think less less of it. It's actually incredibly significant um, um, to God in terms of his purpose and, and how he's moving um, the history of Israel and the, the history of the Jews forward. So how does all this relate to Revelation? Well, you have um, the church as now God's anointed, authorised witness to see and speak on his behalf in the world. And in a sense, the church is given a job. You could even see it this way, couldn't you? The, the church is in a sense contributing to the building of a temple of worshippers by, by, the, by the ingathering of people. The temple by the New Testament is a body of people, a mm. body of worshippers. And there's a building that's going on as people are gathered to the church. Mm. Um, so um, th- this encouragement, do not despise that it might look unimpressive, but, but there's an incredibly significant thing that you are part of if you are part of the church. Part of the church. And at the back of it is the power of the Holy Spirit. God is guaranteeing his work and that it will be finished. Nothing will be left um, incomplete. Okay, we can probably move through the rest of this prophetic picture about the two witnesses relatively relatively quickly. Um, And and what, what plays out is probably one of the most profound encouragements to the church in all of the book of Revelation. Because um, it's really talking about the role that the, the, these witnesses have, that is the spirit and the church mm-hmm. in the proclamation of the gospel um, in terms of the prophetic message that they deliver. And really the ch- it's the church that's in focus here. Um, John's really making some powerful points about what the church can expect to experience in the midst of these last days. Um, mm-hmm. So verse 5 um, introduces the idea that the, 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 these witnesses, the church in particular, will be protected 
and that fire will proceed from their mouths that that protects and devours enemies. Now, this is this fire is clearly a picture of judgment. Fire, or that's what fire always means. But mm. it's like proceeding out of their mouth becomes is this powerful word of judgment that does two things: it devours enemies, but also protects them in some sense. Um, Can- we'll, we'll see. We'll see later that it doesn't protect in the sense that. Um, uh, it doesn't physically save their lives, but it protects in terms of provides a defence. You'll have a you'll have something to say. You, you'll be able to defend yourself. I think it's that sense. Can fire also mean like refining? Oh, definitely. Not just judgment. Yeah, so it's like saving and judging again. Yeah, I think that's probably a better way to think about it. That, that holy fire that that is doing a purifying. Um, and, and sometimes that's expressed in judgment, but sometimes it's expressed in uh, salvation as well. Saving and judging go together. You're right. Helpful. Verse 6, um, it then says, these men, um, and I presume by this he means these witnesses, mm. have power to shut heaven and bring plagues to the earth. Again, another picture of um, judgment that recalls, the, the the two great witnesses of the Old Testament covenant, Elijah and Moses. Mm. Um, Elijah had power to shut heaven. Remember, remember, he prayed and it didn't rain in Israel for all those years. Yeah. Um, um, and Moses had the power to bring plagues to the earth. So mm. I, I think the point being made here is um, the the witnesses to the new covenant have the same access to God and heaven and his power that um as the greats of the old covenant yeah as the greats of the old covenant that that god continues to work in his new covenant in just as powerful a way in fact even more powerful Mm -hmm. check uh, verse seven is quite amazing now when they've finished their testimony the but the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them so out of the dark spiritual depths of opposition to God's kingdom and his rule will appear a beast, and we'll see more about beasts in the coming chapter, but this beast, um, which again is symbolic of opposition, spiritual opposition to God's kingdom, um, will kill these witnesses and overpower them. So, again, it's it's, um, a recognition that, um, in the, the the church will be losing its life daily as part of this this struggle. But the the individuals as part of the church, not the actual the church, can never be overpowered as a whole. By yeah, tr- that, that's right. That's right. It's a, it's a picture of that speaks to the martyrs who are losing their life within the within the church. And what we'll see is that of course the church cannot be overcome because we'll see in verse eleven. The resurrection. Mm. There's resurrection life at work in these witnesses um, that will completely um, strike terror in the world. In fact, it says. Um, so, it, what's interesting here is um, where they will be killed. So, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. So, I think what's going on here is. Um, the, the idea is that the church, 
will have its martyrs and they'll follow in the footsteps of Jesus who died in the great city, which is Jerusalem. Mm. But then two other cities are mentioned, two cities that, well, one's a country, Sodom and Egypt. It's the idea that these are places that have come under God's judgment Mm. from around the world. And so I think this picture is a universal picture. What's going on is that every city will respond to the church in the way that um, Jerusalem responded to Jesus in a sense. Um, And we see this universal picture picked up in the next few verses. It's not that one person's going to die in one place um, because we see in the next couple of verses um, for three and a half days men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. So it's the idea that everyone from everywhere will will be um, uh, treating the treat, treating the the church um, with disrespect, and mm. I don't know how else you could say that. Um, the inhabitants of the earth, again, another universal picture, verse ten, will gloat over them and will celebrate. Um, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So, so I think the idea is, um, you know, the, 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 the rebellious peoples of the earth in the cities of the world will think that they've won and mm. defeated the church. But look what happens next, verse 11. Um, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. So that idea of resurrection life, um, bringing back um, the witness, the, the, these witnesses from the dead. And clearly it can't be a picture of the Holy Spirit. This is about the church. Um, bring, the, 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 the church um, will, ro- will rise again. It reminds me of, I think I've said it before, but Tertullian, one of the um, early church fathers, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and it's actually through death and the shedding of blood that the church grows in power and strength and spreads um, around the world. Um, and the, and it, it, um, ultimately in verse 12 you have a picture here of um, the witness being invited up into glory, come up here and basically the ascending into into the clouds um, to be received by God. And then the, the final verse accompanied by um, earthquakes and, and these signs and wonders on the earth um, will attend will attend the, these witnesses as well. So again, can you see how encouraging this would be for the early church that mm. there's a purpose in their living that in their in their prophesying, there's a purpose in their dying, mm. um, but they won't stay dead. That God will um, bring them to life again, and that the outcome for them is glory. Um, it's to be received into God's presence in glory, accompanied by signs and wonders on the earth. Um, it's an amazing picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me. It reminds me of. This idea of the church as a witness is such an important idea in in the New Testament and it reminds me of a passage at at the beginning of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where Jesus commissions um, 
the disciples to be witnesses. I'll just get you to read it. Acts chapter 1, verse 5 to 8. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of his kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. There's so many, there's so many um, little parts in what Jesus says there that underline what we're talking about. One of the things that I think is really significant is their ability to be witnesses is determinant on them receiving the spirit. Mm. And it's the idea that the spirit and the and the church will go forward as a witness, as witnesses, mm. and, and that it requires that partnership of the indwelling spirit, which reinforces John's picture that we've been talking about. Mm. The other thing is we often think about being a witness and what we have to do and what um, we have to say, etc. And sometimes it um you know, it can weigh you down as a Christian. Mm. The, the whole point here is that God will make you a witness. It's mm. his work. Mm. Um, he makes us witnesses. Our job is to receive the gospel and repent. That is live by an, our example of faith. That is our witness to the world. It's about having things to say and speaking them out, but it's in the context of a life mm. lived with God, lived in repentance. Mm. Um, this passage reinforces the incredible power and responsibility that the church has to, to um, participate in, in God's great plan of redeeming and restoring things. Um, and we've seen through these chapters that, that we've been looking at, you know, the prayers of the saints are bringing fire to the earth while are contributing to fire coming upon the earth mm. um the witness of the saints is in a sense speaking fire to the earth this holy prophetic message um the kingdom of god is going forward by the prayers of the saints and the proclamation of the gospel it, it's a reminder i think too that ch churches today are involved in all sorts of things all sorts of um activities and um, purposes and whatever else, mm. this is a reminder from Jesus' mouth but also through John's vision that prayer and proclamation are at the heart of the commission that God's given to the church. Mm. Yeah. Whatever else we do, those two things should be the main game. Mm. I think that's really important as well. Now let's just mop up the seventh um, trumpet, um, the final trumpet in the stage, and that, that'll finish the chapter. So um, we, we, we now return to the sequence of trumpets and you have uh, an angel uh, in a loud voice proclaiming the Lord's reign forever and ever. The elders are again there worshipping in the throne room and, and um, celebrating that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, um, that you have begun to reign, that, that idea that his sovereignty has begun and is eternal and is go going forward. Um, it's a prayer 
and worship that expresses profound thankfulness that the time has come. It's like we're here. They're they're looking around at the the elders and the worshippers and recognising we're here, Mm. which goes back to um, what the angel has said a while while ago that we read about. um, uh, I'm just going to read. There will be no more delay. The mystery of God will be accomplished. And it's like the worshippers in the throne room are seeing the mystery of God being accomplished um, in the church, in the world, um, which is what Chapter 11's all been about. Mm. Um, they anticipate the final judgment of the dead and the nations are, are angry, it says. Um, and, and then you have the two sides of that last judgment, that there will be a time for reward, the rewarding of the servants and prophets and saints of God, and there will also be a destroying of those who've destroyed the earth. Um, the, the, last two, uh, the last verse of the chapter says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of, the ark of his covenant. And then came flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Um, it's like we're getting taken, we're about to get taken even deeper into the heart of God. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the temple um, is the place where God dwells and the Ark, Ark of the Covenant is the holiest place in the temple, it's like the very last, it's very interesting that the very last things that are going to come out of heaven as visions for the earth emanate from the temple. That is from the heart of God, from the holiest place. We're going deeper. We're going deeper and deeper. And that's what the following chapters um, are going to explore. For those in rebellion, uh, they're going to encounter the most awesome, confronting and horrific things because they're they're encountering God in his pure holiness. Mm. Um, For those... um, who, who are responding to God and for his church and for his people, this is a time of great joy mm. um, um, and, and comfort that, that God's, you know, God's love, God's fulfilment of his covenant promises, God's faithfulness will sustain them. Um, his presence will, will stay with them. Um, I'm not going to read it so I realise I've used up all my time and more, but um, another great psalm that reflects lots of the um, imagery and ideas in the, this last section of, cha- of Revelation chapter 11 comes from Psalm 2, which is an enthronement psalm, a messianic psalm about the, um, uh, about the Messiah coming to rule. And um, m- maybe to finish, you could go away and open your Bibles and have a read of that psalm and speak to the Lord about what he's shown you today.